Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the New Books Network podcast. My name is Lee Pierce, she, they pronouns, and I am very excited today to be in, uh, to be interviewing Melanie Medeiros and her new book, Marriage, Divorce, and Distress in Northeast Brazil, Black Women's Perspective on Love, Respect, and Kinship. Melanie uh, is actually a colleague of mine, assistant professor in the Department of Anthropology here at the State University of New York College at Geneseo, or SUNY Geneseo, as we like to call it. And because this book is sort of a fascinating intersection of media, communication, language, and anthropology, as well as uh, you know Latin America, Black Studies, I, this book covers a lot of ground. I'm also excited to have another colleague of ours at Geneseo, uh, Jennifer Guzman, with us. And so we'll be actually doing a double interview for Melanie today. So Melanie and Jennifer, do you want to introduce yourselves and say hello? Hello, this is Melanie Medeiros. And as Lee already mentioned, I'm an assistant professor of cultural and medical anthropology at SUNY Geneseo. Um, and I teach courses in Latin American studies, women's and gender studies, and black studies, as well as anthropology. And I'm Jennifer Guzman. I'm a linguistic and medical anthropologist. Um, I teach language and culture cor- courses at the college and um, I uh, have been collaborating with Melanie um, for several years on a subsequent project, but have very much enjoyed reading her book, uh, starting with the manuscript and now the final product. Thank you both for coming. I'm really excited about this book, not only because I get to promote a colleague, uh, but also because I really enjoy when I'm reading books about language and media that are not necessarily written from a U.S. context, which I tend to do. And What I think is really interesting from a rhetorical perspective is that this title covers a lot of ground. So we've got marriage, we've got divorce, we've got distress, we've got love, we've got respect, and we've got kinship. And so those six six things, of course, and I think maybe um, medicalization would be maybe the one other one that goes with distress. But we have these six or seven themes that circulate throughout the book. And so I thought uh, we'd start with this issue of divorce because as I'm reading through the book, I sort of noticed that divorce has come to play a unique kind of role in the relationships between marriage and love and respect and kinship that I would not have assumed going into a study of Black women's perspectives about 
what life is like in modern Northeast Brazil, especially with respect to marriage. So I thought, Melanie, we could start there and then we will see where the conversation takes us. Yeah. So I think that for me, this essentially does become an ethnography of divorce. And there's several reasons I felt motivated to write about divorce and focus on divorce. Um, One of those reasons is the fact that um, divorce is often written about in other disciplines outside of anthropology as being a really universal experience. So it's written about from a Western and North American perspective, as if the experiences of um, Western Europeans and Americans' experiences of divorce would be the same as somebody in South America or in Sub-Saharan Africa. And there were actually very few, I mean, less than a handful of book-length ethnographies written by anthropologists on the topic of divorce. Um, so I felt like this was there was a lack, a lacuna in our, in our field on the topic of divorce, and also that um, other disciplines that write on divorce more were lacking a cross-cultural perspective on their approach. Um, so that was like one of the first motivating factors for focusing so heavily on divorce. Um, the second being that uh, households headed by women in the Caribbean and Atlantic coast of Brazil have been written about as being kind of a a product of um, slavery, a product of the past or a product of culture um, in a sense that, um, oh, these are, these are families that just don't stay together. And, and writing, writing about them in a way that I felt minimized the experience of marital dissolution for women who who live through this um, by by saying that this happens so frequently that it's just a given, rather than recognizing that um, the dissolution of these relationships still has dramatic effects. And actually, in many communities, divorce is recent, right? It is not a historical um, tendency or trend; it's a relatively recent process. So, not wanting to lump together all, you know, women of African descent heading households in the Americas and the Caribbean as having the same experience. And I think the the third motivating factor was just after many years of, of traveling to and, and living with this community of women in Northeast Brazil and having them talk to me about their divorce, it was clear that this is something that's at the forefront of their minds and that you know, merited writing about and sharing their experiences. Yeah, Melanie, I really appreciate uh, that you talk about this expansive idea of divorce and um, looking at it from a cross-cultural context and understanding how uh, the rea- the lived reality of m- marital dissolution is going to be different in this particular ethnographic setting than it would in another. And those kind of over-assumptions about the ways that divorce and marriage work in um, Western European U.S. contexts. I wonder if you could speak a little bit about um, the ways that you're defining divorce in the book, which is uh, quite different than a strict legal definition. And I also think that uh, listeners might appreciate to understand a little bit of the ethnographic history and setting of the town where you conducted your ethnography. Yeah, so I'll start with the the definitions of marriage and divorce I'm using. So I'm using in the book definitions that were explained to me by my research informants, by the women in the community that I spent so much time in. And so they define marriage as consisting of 
relationships that were um, solidified through a church ceremony or relationships solidified through a civil ceremony or relationships solidified through cohabitation, what we would call common law marriage or consensual unions in in North America. Um, What was interesting and unique is that they did not distinguish between these relationships in terms of this type of marriage is more significant or more real or has more validity than any other marriage. And in fact, quite a few of my participants quoted this um, song, and I include the lyrics in the book, and it goes, um, if marriage is so good, why do you need a priest? Why do you need a judge? All you need is love. And really what they used that lyric to, to signify was that you know, a bond is a bond. It doesn't matter who's there to witness the bond. And so for the vast majority of the women who I met and spent time with, um, their marriages were common law marriages. And um, again, kind of thinking of the fact that the dissolution of common law marriage um, is a significant experience for these women, even though their marriages were not legally sanctioned. And I think that oftentimes when people are talking about divorce, they're talking about it in terms of this legal definition of a civil union being dissolved through legal proceedings. And for the women in my study, they use the word divorce or separation irrespective of whether or not they legally married someone and legally divorced them. So divorce then is an umbrella term in my book for um, the dissolution of marital relationships, whether or not the marriages were legally sanctioned or not. Um, And then for your second question, the community that I worked with is a community in the interior of the state of Bahia in Northeast Brazil. It's um, a working class, primarily um, people of African descent community that transitioned economically towards ecotourism about 20 years ago. So it went from being mostly agricultural and previous to agriculture um, mining community to now being um, a community that survives off of ecotourism income. And that is plays a role in the book in talking about some of the socioeconomic and cultural changes that are happening surrounding marriage and divorce and kinship relationships more generally. This is so interesting to think about our disciplines because it never, I kind of feel like ashamed by this, but it never occurred to me to ask about the town where all of this happened. Like yeah, it, pretty much the location and the context is at the heart of, of our field of anthropology and understanding all the historical, political, economic, even environmental, in addition to social and cultural factors that influence people's lives. And I think that um, what's, what's beautiful about writing a book is that you have the space to include all that, right? Sometimes that doesn't happen in a research article as much. Um, you, you don't have the space to give that context, but in a book, you, you do. Or do you want to follow up on that? Or do you want to move in another direction? Well, I have maybe just one short follow up question. Um, Melanie, you kind of uh, mentioned this idea that this change to ecotourism and these new sorts of uh, labor opportunities that accompanied that, um, constrained as they were, um, changed kind of women's life chances, what women's opportunities were, and also 
impacted the ways that they may view their their marriages or their their chances with marriage. Um, I wonder if you could speak a little bit to to the the relationship between opening up um, work opportunities for women and how that changes um, ideas about marriage. Yeah, thank you for that question. So the the second chapter of the book really focuses on this, and again, I'm responding to previous literature that talks about women's employment as being a causal factor of divorce, um, both in a North American context and other cultural contexts. And I wanted to kind of explain how it's a causal factor, because oftentimes that argument is reduced to they have income, they no longer need their husbands, boom, they're going to, you know, have these households on their own without their husbands. And what I found was much more complex what I found was that women saw their employment not just as a source of income, but as a source of um, an autonomous identity, Um, an identity as modern women who were working in the productive realm outside of domestic labor, who could purchase the idea of purchasing power was really important to them, could purchase things they wanted for themselves um, and this kind of shift in how they saw themselves, their sense of identity, really is what informed then kind of expectations for their marriages. And it, it that wasn't done in isolation. So they were having these shifts in sense of self from I'm dependent on a husband, I, you know, I'm a wife, I'm a mother, I only work in the home, to I'm an independent woman. Um, I'm a modern woman, I can buy things for myself, I can take care of my families. So they had that shift at the same time as they were being exposed to, and this is where the media comes to play. And I know Lee, you're probably going to ask me about this exposure to messages in telenovelas, Brazilian soap operas, where women are portraying themselves as independent and what an independent modern kind of woman wants, a cosmopolitan woman wants, is a certain type of um, romantic partner. And and I think these two things combined really starts to influence women's expectations um, for their marriages. So for me, it wasn't enough to just say, oh, they're employed, they have money, they don't need husbands. And what the women actually told me is that wasn't the issue at all, that um, the economic independence wasn't what made them end their marriages. It was a sense and change in what they wanted from those marriages and how that was influenced by working, not just the income. Um, and that's why in that chapter, I kind of go into quite a bit of detail about the fact that these women are still economically marginalized, that they're not actually earning that much money, right? So even when we talk about them being independent, it's kind of relative sense of independence. They still rely heavily on support from family members, um, and they're still kind of piecing together a day-to-day living, but being out there in the public sphere and working impacts their identity, um, aside from how much money they're actually bringing into the household. You guessed right. I am going to ask you about the <laughs> telenovelas. But um, since you already raised the question, I'm going to just ask you to keep going because, I mean, your research is so fascinating. But with two quick things that I'm especially interested in is one the way that the telenovela sort of put out this ideal of marriage that becomes an emancipatory vision to which these women can aim when they otherwise were uh, inured. You have a great expression for this. Uh, enduring, I think it is, but you use the 
you use the vernacular of the women. I just, I think it's the word endure, E-N-D-U-R-E in mm-hmm. English, but mm-hmm. I can't remember the word. that Aguentando. Is that what it is? Aguentando, yeah. Top yeah. Word enduring is aguentando, yeah. They, yeah. They, they basically repeated to me over and over again, like women in the past endured this and we, we no longer do. Um, lots of comparisons with prior generations of women. Um, some spoke to their mother's generation, but many focused on their grandmother's generation as, as generations of women who tolerated a certain type of marriage. And I, you know, I, I feel like we're kind of speaking around what that marriage is. Um, so if you want, I can elaborate on that now. Um, Melanie, would you, I, I, when you're talking about this, it reminds me of the particular case of Doña Maria and her granddaughter, Deborah. Yes. Um, I wonder if you would be willing to talk about this. I think you're coming around maybe uh, to talk about, I think that that case illustrates what, what you're talking about. Yeah. So um, Deborah was a, a woman in her thirties. When I first met her, she was in her late twenties and she often drew comparisons between her grandmother and herself. And the way she would describe it to me was, you know, my grandmother used to cook and clean and take care of my grandfather. She would iron his clothes on Friday for him to get dressed, go out and be with other women. And she tolerated that. Um, And I refused to tolerate that. I refused to endure that. Um, And really, so what she's speaking to is this issue of infidelity. And overwhelmingly, what women told me over and over again was that what had changed in marriage expectations was a change in women um, demanding fidelity in ways that prior generations hadn't ever thought to. And that infidelity in the past may have been, you know, the cause of like some stress, um, but was expected, accepted and kind of tolerated, endured. Whereas infidelity now is a deal breaker for younger generations of women. And so that comparison of what women would tolerate or endure now versus what they would tolerate or endure before, um, Deborah and her grandmother were perfect examples of that. And Deborah also, you know, shared with me, and I wrote about this in the chapter, that her grandmother still referred to her ex-husband as her husband, because in her grandmother's mind, you get married once and that husband is forever and nothing should end that relationship. Um, and so Deborah, you know, was kind of amused by the fact that her grandmother still called her ex-husband her husband. Um, yeah. And so that also speaks to, you know, this idea that divorce is, is relatively new in this community, even though people have been saying that women headed households have been common in, you know, Afro-Brazil or the Afro-Caribbean communities for a long time, you know, that's, it's different in different contexts. It's not necessarily the case. And I sort of wanted to point out uh, the, the, for you to talk a little bit about the, the kind of, I don't know, uh, I, you probably don't. So Lauren Berlant, who is a U.S. based cultural critic, anyway, that's not important, uh, has this concept of cruel optimism, which is this idea that one of the things that's happened with the onset of modernism, and I think the telenovelas are a good example, is that we do get these new ideals for what life could look like that can be very empowering because otherwise we sort of get used to the fact that the, the old ways are just what there is, but that because those things are out of reach inherently, that they're also 
they give us this hope for something we can't have, which is a theme you return to in the book. And then she calls that cruel optimism because it's a thing that you believe you can have that makes you think with hope, but that also hurts you in that thinking with hope. Mm -hmm. And so I thought talking a little bit about that would be interesting uh, because I really found that fascinating, especially with relationship to distress and the medicalization of distress. And then we can pitch it back over to Jennifer for follow-up on that. So for me, that was one of my most remarkable findings. Um, you know, going into my field work, I had read a lot about media transforming women's expectations for romantic love. So I fully went in expecting women were going to tell me the definition of love has changed. Now love is this, et cetera, et cetera. But what women actually told me was that love didn't exist in their marital relationships that um, they didn't aspire to love, right? They aspired to aspire to having respect. And I can talk a little bit about what they meant by respect. That definition of respect had been um, transformed by, by the telenovela viewing. So they've kind of appropriated from telenovelas a notion that fidelity is a sign of respect and that you want your partner to be faithful in order to demonstrate respect for you. But women did not believe that they could have the romantic love-based relationships in the telenovelas. So this, this idea of like aspiring to one component of it, aspiring to fidelity, while accepting that other forms, you know, other components of a romantic love or a telenovela relationship were unattainable. Um, so they continue to say, Yep, love only happens in the telenovelas um, or between, you know, family members, like family love is the, the real love, like blood-based relatives is real love. And that, um, but we at least want respect. And 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 I think that the, not being able to attain that respect, right, is, is distressing because respect is a really important value for this community. So once they started linking fidelity to respect, and then realize they're being disrespected over and over again by their husbands, that becomes a source of distress in a way that infidelity may not have been in the past when it wasn't considered disrespectful, it was considered a normal part of men's behavior. Um, so um, I'm really glad that you're uh, moving into this issue of the women's notions about respect and the ties with the telenovelas, I just want to bring out how um, really important theoretically this these ideas are that you're contributing here because it really pushes back on kind of classic interpretations um, of marital relations with respect to the patriarchal bargain on one hand and also the notions of honor and shame. And one thing that I thought was really um, amazing in your findings is that the women really don't conceive of these issues in terms of honor and shame, but with these changing ideas of respect and um, also how these ideas of respect through fidelity are actually, uh, you know, it's not the first time respect is coming up, but that expectations for respect earlier were quite different in the earlier generations time. Yeah. yeah the earlier generations, uh, you know, partners, Demonstrated respect. Women demonstrated respect to their husbands by being obedient and, and you know, completing their tasks in the household as part of what you refer to as the patriarchal bargain, right? This, this bargain that um, marriage surrounded and, and husbands showed respect by 
um, fulfilling their role in the bargain, which was to financially provide for their households to not disappear um, and to uh, not abuse, physically abuse their wives. And so the question of physical abuse being a sign of respect, that continues, right? The, the, physical, the lack of physical abuse as a sign of respectful relationship um, is still part of this new contemporary modern definition of respect or what I call romantic respect. It's the addition of um, fidelity as a marker of respect that has, has changed. And so in the book, I, I kind of name this concept romantic respect to distinguish between um, the respect from prior generations and what they expected or indicated as respect. So I went in thinking I was going to find different definitions of love between generations. And what I ended up finding were different ge- uh, definitions of respect and how one demonstrates respect. Um, with that fidelity component being the the big distinguishing distinguishing factor between the two. Yeah, I really like this book. I, there were so many things that as I was reading it going, you know, if I had had to guess, I would not have come to this assumption. So if someone had said, what do you think the relationship between, I don't know, telenovelas and marriage and divorce in Northeast Brazil is, and I had guessed, I would have been way off base. Which made reading this book really fascinating because you do, and we haven't even talked. I mean, we touched a little bit on it, but the depth of anthropological evidence, right? The testimony that you paraphrase and sometimes verbatim quote from these women that you interviewed are really fascinating. So let's, uh, Jennifer, do you have questions in terms of follow up about the richness of the ethnography that we haven't already covered? Well, I wonder if, um, especially if some of your listeners may not be anthropologists, I think that, uh, you know, we've talked, Melanie, about the interviews that you've done and what women have said, um, but your longitudinal, long-term involvement in this community, I think, um, I would really appreciate if you could speak a little bit to your engagement in the community over time. And in addition to your interviews, what other methods you used uh, to learn about these issues? Mm-hmm. So I started visiting this community in 2006 before I even called myself an anthropologist. Um, and when I then decided to get my PhD in anthropology and to do long-term field work, it made sense to go back to the community that had given me this topic of divorce in Brazil to work on. And I had already spent, you know, a few years visiting and living in for months at a time. So, so that was in 2006 that I started forming relationships in 2009 is when I started collecting data before a master's thesis. Um, and then I kept going back every year. And then 2011, 2012, I spent two consecutive years doing extensive field work um, in the community and then continue to go back every year for a month or two um, up until this year. So I have a very long-term commitment to the community. I have very close relationships with um, some of the participants in the book. A lot of the stories I share, um, you'll notice as you're reading, um, cover expanses of time because I actually experienced, you know, some women through their first, second, even into their third relationship um, at that point, by the third, they stopped calling them their husbands. That was, that's a, that's a, a topic for a different conversation um, and, and how the, the concepts and the language used to describe relationships is changing due to the prevalence of divorce, um, the increased prevalence of divorce. But 
the the methods I used um, in addition to extensive long uh, life history interviews, um, where I ask about women's lives from childhood all the way up to the present moment with focused questions on divorce. I also um, did a lot of participant observation. And for those non-anthropologists in the room or listening, you participant observation is basically, as I like to explain to my students, spending time and hanging out with people a lot, right? So um, going to community events, um, birthday parties, weddings, bridal showers, um, spending time in people's kitchens as they're cooking, watching telenovelas with them. Um, and I even then did took um, temporary, you know, a few days at a time working in different aspects of the ecotourism industry to get a sense of what that felt like for the women working in ecotourism. Um, so it's just getting in, as involved in the community as possible. And it, I threw in as well some, you know, demographic interviews, some semi-structured surveys um, to have a little bit more comparative data. And um, I also did my own kind of content analysis, analysis of telenovelas. So watched a few telenovelas um, really closely Though there's so many media studies of telenovelas in Brazil, I don't write about my content analysis as much in the book because other people have, and I decided not to devote as much space to that. But I use the content analysis that I did to um, write follow-up questions. So after I finished those two years in the field, when I went back, um, I went specifically to ask more about the telenovelas because I had found that that it was a bigger a bigger topic than I realized, and that I wanted more more data specifically on on women's consumption of telenovelas. So, yeah, the, a long term process certainly, um, and that I think that's one of the beautiful things about ethnographic fieldwork is that you can zoom in on certain moments in time, but then zoom out over a long period of time and see how those specific moments connect one another. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. How did you figure out telenovelas were going to be significant? Was it just a, you noticed a repetitive theme or there was a particularly turning point in a certain person's narrative? Or how does one decide that like the telenovelas are going to be central to all of these themes of marriage and distress and relationships? So both from my participant observation data and just watching telenovelas with people and listening to them talk about the telenovelas. And then in my interview, my first set of interviews before I did telenovela content analysis and looked more into them, I asked, what is influencing your definitions of love? What is influencing your definitions of respect? And again, expecting to hear women say, Oh, the things I observe with tourists, right? Or like in, you know, I, I have conversations with tourists. Like this, I was expecting to hear more about this exposure to people from outside the community through tourism. But nope, what everyone told me is, oh, on television. Right? And I, I even was hearing that from older generations of women who said, you know, I'm, I don't, I'm not going to divorce my husband, but I don't blame younger women for doing it. And then I would ask, well, why is that the case? 
well, on TV, you know, it happens all the time. On TV, women don't tolerate infidelity. Like, why should, why should we? Like, I'm too old to get divorced, but I don't blame, you know, the younger generation for doing it. So they told me. <laughs> That's the long answer to, <laughs> long answer to your question. They told me. And so then that informed my follow-up data collection and asking more pointed, directed questions about telenovelas and the themes in telenovelas. And that's where I also got the sense of the telenovela being some, you know, the, the life in the telenovela being something aspirational that they acknowledged wasn't realistic for them, right? But then they still, you know, took some components of that telenovela lifestyle and wanted it for themselves. And it's because of that relationship to respect, um, respect to modernity. Yeah. And I think that the other kind of component here that that was interesting um, to the telenovelas that also surprised me was the number of women who expressed the, that telenovelas were an important part of their day-to-day lives because they felt like it exposed them to ideas, information, even knowledge from outside of their local community. So telenovelas became like a resource for most of these women, you know, did not complete high school level. Um, some of them had low literacy, um, like demographic surveys that I expected I'd have women complete themselves. I, I was surprised, you know, to learn early in my research that a lot of the women weren't able to complete them. And so then they, I started administering them early. So they relied on telenovelas as a, as a source of information. And when you think about what the content of telenovelas actually is, <laughs> it's, it's pretty remarkable. Um, and it's not to say, I mean, there were some women who were like, I know it's not real, right? But then there are very much other women who talked about, you know, diagnosing partners, relatives, and, and guessing that that person had AIDS based on a, a telenovela storyline where someone had AIDS and they, they recognize the symptoms from the storyline. And and then told their partner, I think your brother has AIDS, right? So pretty, pretty remarkable. Or another another woman who um, wanted to, she was in a unique position that she was legally married to a European citizen and wanted to legally divorce him because he actually had resources that she wanted access to. And um, she followed the steps of what someone in the telenovela did and the conversations that that person in the telenovela had with their divorce lawyer, she used to make a case in the local court system for getting, you know, the house that she and her ex-husband shared, et cetera. So pretty remarkable considering how fictionalized telenovela storylines are, the way women were using them as a source of information. I wonder, Melanie, um, one of the, if you would speak a little bit to um, issues that I think you address really well in your book that we haven't talked about a lot, but issues of racialization of this particular group of women in the local community and uh, notions perhaps of whiteness in Brazil and how that impacts as well the viewing of telenovelas and the production and the consumption of those. It's a very complex topic. If any of the listeners um, have read about Brazil or done research in Brazil, um, they, they'll know that this is a complex topic. I'll try and, and, and give you the, the rundown for those of you who are less familiar. So um, race in Brazil is constructed very differently than the United States. It's not just based on a 
phenotypic. It's not just based on certain physical traits of how you look, um, but class, um, geographic location, um, the way you speak, the clothes you wear, so bodily practices all go into a construction of race. So we talk about race in Brazil um, as I t- use this language and other scholars of race in Brazil use it as well as people being marked as certain race. So the women in my community as being women who are primarily of African descent, working class, living in the rural Northeast are very much marked as being black or brown Brazilians and black or brown Brazilians, um, especially black, um, black working class uh, women are the most marginalized group in Brazil. So Kia Caldwell, I'd be, you know, it'd be wrong for me not to mention her work because she's been working on this intersection between race, gender, and class in Brazil for decades. And um, her work is phenomenal. So she she basically argues that this population is the most oppressed and marginalized in the country. So I kind of take up that argument in the book to talk about how um, these faithful, respectful relationships depicted in the telenovelas become a marker of um, of whiteness because the telenovela protagonists are people who are marked in Brazil as being white, right? They have, you know, they have physical traits of people who are primarily of European descent. They're upper class. They live in metropolitan Southern Brazilian cities that tend to have more of a population of people of European descent. Um, and they're, they are the stars of the telenovelas, whereas people who are marked as being black tend to play secondary characters such as housekeepers, nannies, Etc. Um, and there's a whole literature on on this particular that particular topic. So one of the arguments I make is that the storylines in the telenovelas are depicting women who are representing modern Brazil. Right? They're educated. They um, they have careers. They're independent. They're consumers. They live very just luxurious lifestyles. And they are, they represent whiteness. And um, so one of the points that I make in the book that is, it is a complex point is that for women who are marginalized at the intersection of race, gender, and class, so for working class women who are marked as black, um, the aspiration for fidelity is, is part of an aspiration for the social mobility, the equality, the respect, the recognition that one gets being a white upper class woman living in one of these cosmopolitan cities in Brazil, and um, and then that kind of informs their aspirations for that respect. So they recognize, I'm not going to have a car. I'm never going to live in one of those cities. I'm never going to be blonde. Right? There's there's a lot of things that they can't have, but at the minimum, to be treated with the respect that these. Um, you know, ma- women who are marked as white and upper class, the respect that they that they um, require, right? The respect that they demand to demand that for themselves is, is I think, part of a, you know an internalized racial discussion and conversation. And it comes back to that idea that um, not you know because we, we typically and I think going into this, I sort of had these these binary expectations that. We're gonna that the telenovelas are gonna 
show up and be thoroughly westernized. And so it's all going to be all bad. Or the telenovelas are going to be inspiring and that's going to be all good. But in fact, they interact with them in very complex ways. Do you think, do you think the, gosh, do you think the medical, so the telenovelas and the medicalization of distress interrelated in any way? Like, are they both symptomatic? You think of similar kinds of shifts or do you think that they just tend to to converge in this particular population? So I think that they're both emblematic of modernization and globalization. So telenovelas are spreading kind of a, a, a modern ideal of individualism, um, individual choice of a romantic partner, relationships that are based in individual needs and wants um, and desire, rather than thinking of, you know, what the family needs and wants or marriage as a contract. So, um, so these modern ideas of what a relationship is supposed to be like, are then kind of spread through globalization, right? And what's, what's unique, I think, about the Brazilian case is that these global messages are coming to women in Brazil from Brazilian media forms, right? So it's globalization and modernization working together. Modernization and globalization also play a role in the medicalization of distress, right? So we're, we're looking at this kind of global spread of biomedical or allopathic models of care. And in, you know, Brazil is as much uh, wrapped up in this as most of the world is. And so, um, Whereas in the past, women's distress due to um, oppression, inequality, um, family issues, et cetera, social relations would be handled at a local level through social support networks. Now we're seeing more and more women um, using the the biomedical system and being uh, prescribed medication, right? Tranquilizers. Um, to help them with their distress. And that, that is a product of modernity. That is a product of kind of this, um, this biomedicalization of life all over the world. And so I think that I wouldn't say the telenovelas, you know, directly contribute to distress, but they're all part of a, a very similar interconnected web of um, what it means to be modern, aspiring to that modernity, not achieving it, all right, not achieving some of those values, that being the source of distress on top of, you know, being marginalized at work, not being paid enough, um, being mistreated, et cetera, et cetera, right? So these, this kind of distress is not happening in isolation. It's not just due to marriage, conflict, and divorce. And then the solution to it becoming more and more also a product of modernity and that being... Um, the use of medication instead of those, um, you know, more historic social network support systems. Uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about um, the honor. So you talk about respect and how respect has become, become the new signifier of what modern relationships are supposed to, to what 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 the what the ideal of the modern relationship. And you say that there used to be more of this honor. Like it kind of displaces the word honor versus shame. So there was an honor-shame sort of binary that is associated with these traditional marriages. And now these women are moving toward this ideal of more of a uh, respect as opposed to shame. So could you talk a little bit maybe about that while we wait for Jennifer? Yeah. So one of the things I think, you know, it's hard for me to say whether it's been a shift from within the community from honor to shame to respect, disrespect. I actually think that in this community what's happened – 
is that honor shame was never really relevant for them. And that the honor shame dynamic is one that anthropologists and other, you know, social scientists have written about um, in the Mediterranean, elsewhere in Latin America, with the assumption that again, of this like universality, like Mediterranean or you know, Latin American cultures work on this honor shame complex. But again, it's not universally applicable. And honor the honor shame complex, um, this idea of thinking about women needing to be honorable, men needing to protect their honor, um, shame being related to sexuality, um, to even being out in public, is a, you know, a product of colonialism and a product of um, Christianity and, and ideals being spread by the Catholic Church during the colonial period. These ideals were never realistic for women of African descent, right? First of all, during colonialism and, and slavery, they, they didn't have a choice whether or not to be out in public, whether to be properly clothed. They were never considered to be people who could be honorable. And so one of the arguments that I can make is that for these women, you know, honor and shame has never been, the idea of honor has never been really attainable or something to strive for. So respect is more of a locally salient value because um, it's not tied as much to these kind of Christian, colonial, European ideas of how women are supposed to behave to be respectful um, or to, to be deserving of, of respect. And yeah, so in, you know, so in select cases, Somebody, maybe people will mention honor or shame, but respect and disrespect is achievable, right? Respect just becomes uh, achievable to a community that historically was not able to obtain honor in the way that it was dictated by by the Catholic Church. Wow. It's like amazing to me your brain figured all of that out. <laughs> a lot of a lot of reading and writing and thinking about it all. I you know there's other people who've written about honor and shame in the colonial period um in Brazil it, it, honor and shame is definitely a relevant um you know conceptual framework for other um, ethnographic context within Brazil. And I, I think that that's, you know, one of the things we keep coming back to that's unique about anthropology is the statements I'm making in my book, I wouldn't even universally apply them to all of Brazil. Like I'm telling a, a story about one community, um, one rural community where there's ecotourism and primarily people of African descent who are working class and are, are you know, again, marked as black. And this is their experience and their story. Um, and I think that in some communities in Brazil, um, maybe communities of more people of European descent or perhaps more urban for whatever you know reason, they may still you know focus more on honor and shame. In fact, there's there's an ethnography that someone wrote about honor, honor killings in Brazil. Um, it's unfortunately the the name is escaping me right now and it's an historical ethnography. so it, it's not contemporary, but it, but it very much relies on the idea that um, the honor shame trope was a justification for domestic violence um, in Brazil. So it is a paradigm that's useful. It just, for my, the community that I did work with, wasn't as useful for them. 
studies really well contextualized, not not only in like sort of the immediate setting of Brogodo. How do you say the name of this town? Brogodo. Yeah, it's a, it's a pseudonym for the town. It's, oh, it's a pseudonym. Okay. It's, a pseudonym. it's actually uh, the name of a town in a telenovela that was. Uh-huh, I love that. And my, the, my friends would always say like, Brogodo is like, is like our town. So yeah. Um, oh, yeah. Well, in the town, but it's very, it's very richly contextualized in the lives and the sort of the, the physical setting, but also just the kinds of theories that were put forth or findings that were put forth by other anthropologists doing similar work that we've taken up as just explanatory mechanisms, like like honor killings. I mean, I think about, you know, I've heard that phrase all the time, kind of just casually applied to to the way we think of what must be happening, quote unquote, over there. And then for you to go, well, yeah, but we've picked this up, but is it necessarily the right fit? for what we're seeing in this town. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I wonder, um, Melanie, I like a good nuance to my theory. Oh, are you back? Yeah, I am. Oh, great. <laughs> Hello. Um, I, I have been listening in. Um, so I, I wonder if there was something that you mentioned earlier, Melanie, that I want to ask you to cycle back to, because I find this one of the really fascinating things, um, from what you learned among these women is that you said that one of the things they do not aspire to love and they don't use the term amor when they talk about the men with whom they have romantic relationships, marriages. Um, but they do talk about love and amor verdadero in, in, in another context. Um, and you really speak a lot about consanguineal kin and, um, um, matrifocal relationships. And I think that this is really a beautiful thing about these women's family lives um, and expectations. I wonder if you can speak to that. Yes, definitely. Um, And I think that's the the piece that we haven't touched upon. Um, If I consider a trifecta of of, uh, influences on women's decisions to, to dissolve their marriages, the fact that they have such a close relationship's with their relatives, their in a, you know blood relatives, the the people that they see um, as being really important to their lives, they live locally, they're in the community, and in and this ties to matrifocality um, and the idea that this is really a women centered community. And what's unique is that it's women centered, meaning that women rely on one another, they support one another financially with childcare, with other material support like food exchange, etc. Um, but then it is still patriarchal and that that men um, have, you know, there's these patriarchal ideas about men and authority and power, but yet women's networks are so strong that they, that they you know, survive and thrive without the, these men in their households. And um, so women express that the, the true love in their lives is the love for their relatives, the, these people who... Um, have been with them since birth, um, their mothers, their sisters, their cousins, their children, and that they um, they may have friendship relationships, but that they're not always 100% based in, in trust, or they're not considered to be necessarily permanent friendships. And they don't see marital relationships as being as reliable and trusting as they do um, their kinship relations. And I think, you know, one of the interesting things about that finding was that some people write when they write about, um, have written about romantic love and modern marriage, and th- those two things go together, this idea of, 
you know, a relationship based on affect and wanting that. Um, is, what other studies have found is that then there's less of a focus on the extended family, right? When individuals are choosing one another based on affect, based on desire, based on, you know, an affinity towards one another, the, that nuclear family becomes the focus and the extended family loses, um, loses uh, they're, they're no longer a priority. And what I found was that it was the opposite, that because the romantic ideal was not attainable, women even felt more strongly connected to their extended family network because that was reliable. So um, again, something different than what other people have found that's unique, potentially unique to this context. Um, I can only speak towards this context, but that that I think was pretty remarkable, right? This kind of held fast, steadfast idea that no love only true love only exists between family members. What you have with husbands and boyfriends is they often would say we like one another instead of we love one another. Um, they would have passion. They use the word passion. They use the word infatuation, but not love. And Melanie, to follow up on this a little bit, can you speak um, a bit to the ways that women are socializing their daughters and their granddaughters now um, and what you see going on with those relationships and kind of the ways that older women talk about marriage with their with younger women? Yeah. So what I was witnessing, I didn't witness it so much with like the grandmother generation and then like young adolescent girls, but with my research informants who were, you know, women in their twenties and thirties and forties, the ones who I did more like long-term ethnography with and their daughters is this expectation that, um, daughters should be, you know, avoiding or putting off having a boyfriend that they should be focusing on finishing school, or they should be thinking about college, that education was the way out of ending up in a bad marriage. And then their daughters, I was only able to do like a, a handful of interviews with um, adolescent girls. Um, they, they kind of were expressing those things back to me. But what they said was really interesting was that it wasn't even so much what their mothers were telling them to focus on. It was their experiences of witnessing, and they use these words, the suffering of their mothers was making them rethink, why would I want to get married? Why would I want to do this? Like men aren't trustworthy. I'm going to go to school. I'm going to get out of this. And so there's an assumption here. There's an assumption that getting educated is definitely a way out. That assumption that if you get educated, there's going to be a job for you. Um, and there's also the rather naive assumption that you're not going to fall in love or accidentally get pregnant or the number of things that could happen that could, de you know, derail those plans. But what was interesting ideologically is, is that kind of that, that narrative being shared mother to daughter and then daughter back to me about, I want to go to school. I don't want a boyfriend. I don't want to get married. I watched my mother suffer. I don't want to suffer like that. Um, and what only time will tell is if the, the, you know, the cycle is broken, if it, these women young women do end up traveling alternative paths or not. And that's, the, I think, the beautiful thing about like long-term ethnographic research is I fully expect that I will continue to have a relationship with this community and, and find that out. 
I mean, it's just, oh, there's so much left I want to talk about, but I worry that we're kind of running into the end of our time, unfortunately, which this is, this is the downside to great work. So there's just so much you want to finish, but luckily everyone can continue the conversation by getting a copy of the book. So I won't worry too much. Uh, Jennifer or Melanie, is there anything else you wanted to add or chat about quickly before we wrap up? I think I just want to, you know, one point that I just want to really hit home is that um, this, again, returning to this idea of looking at things at the intersection of race, gender, and class. And one of the main arguments I make in the book is that um, these women's gender identities, racial identities, class, um, class positions, social positions impact their lives in numerous ways. And I've chosen to focus on marriage and divorce, but that marriage and divorce is, is occurring within you know, a, a context of inequality, marginalization, and is just, you know, one extra um, component of their lives that where they're suffering, where they're experiencing distress, but also happiness and success and, you know, enjoy with their families. So it's uh, for most of the cases, the women were very much um, satisfied with their decisions to end their relationships. They felt very empowered and felt good about where they were. So I'd like to end on that positive note that, <laughs> that even in, within a context where, you know, life was really hard, that the majority of the women had reached a place where they felt happy. For taking the time to let us know that. That was a nice thing for you to do for my brain. <laughs> All right. Uh, Jennifer, do you want to add anything else? I would just say, you know, I, one of the things I really appreciate about Melanie's book is that as she just pointed out, although women have, um, you know, a multitude of constraints on, uh, you know, a lot of structural obstacles to their happiness, their thriving, um, this is really a study that documents these women's agency and the actions that they take. Um, to, you know, the values that they hold and the way the actions that they take to improve their lives and thrive um, and build, build families, um, build those relationships. And uh, I, I think that's just fascinating. Absolutely agree. I really enjoyed this book. So once again, thank you um, to both of you for coming on. It was a wonderful interview, and I'm excited to actually see you in person very soon to continue to talk about how much I loved this. <laughs> and for the listeners out there in podcast land, all 65,000 of you, I will let you know that how much I encourage you to get a copy of Marriage, Divorce, and Distress in Northeast Brazil, Black Women's Perspectives on Love, Respect, and Kinship by Melanie Medeiros. You can also, if you're not interested in getting your own copy of the book, we really encourage you to ask your library to get a copy. We thank Rutgers University Press. These university presses are very often uh, barely breaking even on the books that they produce, but they are the best way for many of us to get terrific research like this out into the world. And so asking your library to purchase a copy or you purchasing a copy is one way that we not only support the interviews happening on this uh, podcast, but also the wonderful research being done and the university presses that get that research out to the public. So with that, I will say goodbye. I'm now going to go find a telenovela to watch other than Jane the Virgin, which doesn't count. And uh, would anyone like to recommend another podcast for an upcoming interview? Another, inter sorry, another book for an upcoming podcast interview. Um, how about Claire Daniels' Mediating Morality, The Politics of Teen Pregnancy in the Post-Welfare Era? 
Ah, yes. Another work of um, cross-cultural uh, intersection of cross-cultural media and sort of family norms. That's exciting. Thank you for that recommendation. Well, it was wonderful to talk to both of you. Goodbye to you. Goodbye to those of you in podcast land. And we will see you again or not see you again soon for another interview. <laughs>